and welcome to the first episode of Yazidi Voices. This is Martina and Svenja speaking. Uh, today we are joined by the founders of the Yazidi Legal Network, Hope Rickelman and Gila Kayani. So thank you so much for being here today. And before we jump into the questions, would you mind introducing yourselves? Hello, everyone. My name is Gila Kayani and I am founding member of Yazidi Legal Network together with Hope. Um, so my name is Hope Rickelman. Um, together with Sheila, we started the Legal Network uh, two years ago. And um, yeah, I live in the Netherlands and I have a background in international public law and international criminal law. So uh, I live currently now in Kurdistan, uh, in northern Iraq. And like, like I hope, I have also a background in international public law and mostly in international criminal law. Okay, thank you very much for your introduction. Um, may I just ask you, what was the idea behind the City Legal Network? Um, yeah, so if I can start out, I think that um, the idea behind the City Legal Network really started two years ago. So Sheila um, had a few years in the region, uh, Iraq and Kurdistan, and she came back and um, she participated in a uh, event, which I actually organized with the new Hanovich Foundation in Amsterdam. And this, this event was on universal jurisdiction. So the possibilities of uh, different mechanisms and um, different accountability uh, possibilities on um, with the focus on Syria. Um, and Gila, she came up to me, we studied together and she said, Hope, I've been in Iraq and, uh, and Kurdistan. Um, I know that the Yazidis are very much underrepresented within the region, but also within Europe. Uh, is there anything that we can do together for the community? And uh, my initial initial um, answer was yes, of course. Let's see what we can do together. Um, prior to UCD Legal Network, uh, together with the Nuhanovich Foundation, I set up Siri Legal Network. Um, so I very much had an idea and a format in my head uh, what we could do for the Yazidis in the Netherlands. Yeah, and. Um, what hope is not also including is that hope had a great network in the netherlands and in europe in general and my network consists mostly of uh, organizations in kurdistan and in iraq and um, our idea back then was and it still is is how can we actually make the organizations in iraq and in kurdistan work together with the institutes uh, in europe and in the netherlands specifically so that's how we actually came up with the Yazidi Legal Network, um, making sure that accountability mechanisms are easier available for Yazidi victims who are uh, mostly in displaced locations. Yeah, so like Sheila said, I think that we we saw opportunities to to bridge the gaps between different different parties. So if you talk about NGOs or if you talk about accountability mechanisms, um, even states, uh, so like war crimes units throughout Europe um, and potentially other um, other countries, uh, we we really saw um, an opportunity to to link all of these different parties. Uh, together with the Yazidi community. 
Well, I would say you did that very successfully um, since we're still here talking about it. <laughs> yes, um, I do want to ask, I uh, hope you touched upon it a little bit um, already. I think maybe Sheila, you can answer this. Um, could you tell us a bit more about the personal experiences you had um, that maybe with Yazidi uh, survivors, but in general in Iraq, um, that um, pushed you towards this idea? Um, generally speaking, um, I myself am a child from war, and I was a refugee in the Netherlands. And I always felt that, you know, the chapter of war was never over for me. And the schools I went to in the Netherlands were excellent in educating uh, on the Holocaust and justice systems. And the reason why that was is because I lived in Vught as a child. And in Vught, a lot of people don't know, it's uh, actually a, loca uh, a location in the Netherlands, a village basically, where there was a concentration camp erected by the Nazis and where the Holocaust uh, played a major role in the Netherlands. So after the World War II, the camp was first used as a prison for Germans and um, what was labeled wrong people, like Dutch assessment and collaborators and their children. And uh, later it was um, also used as a housing for Indonesian Moluccans. Um, and it was used as their living quarters um, as the decolonization started in Indonesia, which is a former colony of the Netherlands. And in Vught, and Vught has a lot of history, I would say. Uh, Vught was also a, loca a location of the Nieuwe Vosselveld. And Nieuwe Vosselveld is actually a prison in Vught that is more um, famous for the other name, Penitentiaire Inrichting Vught, which is a penitentiary institution Vught. And um, it's basically a maximum security prison. It holds some of the Europe's most famous criminals, um, which included also Islamic terrorists like uh, Mohammed B and Samir A. Dutch people will know what I'm talking about. Um, so like I said, I always felt that the chapter of war was never over for me. And I remember I saw that the ICTY was established in uh, The Hague and they arrested Milosevic and they were prosecuting uh, the persons responsible for the vicious crimes in the Balkan area. And I remember I told my mother, and I remember it very vividly, I said, I pointed uh, my finger at the screen, I said, I want to do that. Um, in 2013, I visited uh, the most important place of the Yazidis, which is the Lalish Temple. And I was there with a group of students from Amsterdam, and it was organized by it was organized by the university in Amsterdam, the VU. Mm -hmm. and, um, and I was immediately taken by the place and by the Yazidis uh, who were visiting the temple. And being able to feel all the compassion um, that the temple, being able to feel all the compassion that people put towards this place, it really touched me uh, emotionally. Um, the Yazidi visitors uh, of the temple talked about their culture, their religion, but also the massive discrimination and violence, violence they were facing. Um, at that time, I was giving uh, guest lectures as part of an education program on discrimination and genocide at high schools in the Netherlands. 
and their stories of extreme violence uh, they were witnessing was for me an indication that something awful is happening and that it could lead to worse if not intervened. And exactly one year later in 2014, the genocide campaign by ISIS uh, commenced. And I remember where I was, uh, actually exactly where I was. And I was in Croatia back then and I was uh, having a student's visit to the Balkan region again in Croatia. I was, uh, I was in Croatia back there. Um, so after the commencement of the genocide, I started my master's in international law and specifically international criminal law at the UVA. And I simultaneously uh, volunteered for Emma organization who were helping Yazidi female escapees of ISIS. So in the period of between 2015 and 2018, I settled back into Kurdistan and in Iraq. And I worked there until 2018 for multiple organizations, most notably UNHCR. And in that period of time, I felt that there were so, there, I felt that there was so much to be done for justice mechanisms after the conflict, and um, that's why I, when I returned back to the Netherlands, I immediately contacted Hope, and we are here now in 2020 and well-established Yazidi Legal Network. Yeah, well, I see very very strong like personal reasons behind it and. Um, it must have been uh, also with your personal experience of war, it must have been very strong feelings that have brought you to this. Yeah, and especially if you work with the victims, I mean, um, the situation that they are in and, and the many hurdles they are facing in accessing basic needs, let alone justice, it's so high. I don't think that without proper interventions, they would be accessing justice in uh, especially in european courts so that was uh, of course um, one of the reasons why we set up the SD legal network yeah i can understand so what were your first like steps to found Yazid legal network because uh, you've mentioned the nuhanovic foundation before um so how did then Yazid legal network come to be practically speaking um yeah i think i think you know it's um it's quite a long process or it has been quite a long process um gila and i started out with um having lots and lots of meetings together um just sitting down and brainstorming how um you know how to reach the ecd community here in the netherlands um because we we are we did start off focusing purely on the Netherlands. Um, in the meantime, we have grown and developed quite a bit. Um, so our, our focus obviously also has um, has a broader range. Um, but in the beginning, we, we sat down, we made a feasibility study as to which organizations were working on what concerning the Yazidis and also um, where the Yazidi community um, mainly are in throughout Europe. Um, I think also there, you know, it wasn't, it and still isn't our idea to reinvent the wheel, but very much to see where the need is. Um, and we very quickly actually found out that, you know, as to representation, supporting, um, giving the Yazidis the platform, helping them with legal assistance and or psychological support, 
uh, was lacking in the Netherlands. Um, so, so I think really the basics, starting out, um, you know, the, the, the study that we made. Um, and from there, the second phase or the second step, I guess, was directly con contacting the UZDs that are, that were, are and um, were in the Netherlands. Um, and just having, you know, really informal conversations with, with them as to what their ideas were and what their needs were. Yeah, and uh, one of the pillars of Easy Legal Network, I would say, or not necessarily pillar, but um, goal, I would say, is including um, the Yazidis in academic studies. We were both students, uh, and we 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 wanted to include um, the academic fields into researching legal accessibility of Yazidis and and strengthening the um, academic studies on Yazidis as well. So we also um, reached out to students who are interested in Yazidis and who wants to write a paper, let's say. Started very small, I think, in the beginning. I think um, that's <laughs> I think that's one of our um, our kind of like slogans that we had, which is uh, might be a little bit personal, but I think some sometime in the beginning, um, Sheila and I wrote down um, during one of our brainstorm sessions, um, think or what was it? Start small, think big. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, re I remember that was one of our our things that we had. Yeah. Well, it's, it's already working super well. We are already a rather big network right now. Um, and I think we're continuously growing. So yeah, it's super impressive. And I think it's, it's working very well. The very reason why we are big, I think, is also to the many hours that all of these volunteers are putting in into the organization as well. Um, I think that that's very important to mention. It's not just me and Hope. But <laughs> a lot of people working with us as well yeah absolutely i think that um you know the core business that we have is including different like i said at the beginning i mean you know including different parties and um a lot of a lot of students um and a lot of legal experts that are doing pro bono work for us that are pitching in um sharing their expertise sharing their knowledge um and this is yeah this this really is the fundament of the organization i think yeah, and the ambassadors, the Yazidi ambassadors, yeah, of they also, yeah. uh, especially in the beginning, we couldn't, we couldn't do anything without without their support as well. Um, I think it should also be mentioned. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and and getting their ideas and and basically formalizing it into a program, that was um, very important as well. I mean, especially the first uh, ambassadors, they were uh, crucial. Yeah, well, it's a big teamwork effort that seems to be working. It's great to see and be a part of it also. Um, and so do you want to talk also a bit about challenges that you faced while creating the Unity Legal Network? Maybe some some main issues that you had, if there were any? Um. Um. <laughs> 
There are many challenges, but I think you can ch change the word challenges into opportunities. That's what we always did. In the, yeah. So when we faced the challenge, we saw also the opportunity in it. Um, it's very important to mention that the ZD Legal Network has a victim-centered approach, um, which means that we have to balance what we can ask from, from the community and what we can deliver, you know, management of expectations. And, and we do that by uh, holding all of these meetings with our ambassadors, as well as seeing what is uh, feasible for us. Um, especially if we look at funding, for instance, um, we, me and Hope, and I think everybody is actually a volunteer at Yazidi uh, Legal Network. And um, so when we have also a job <laughs> next to our, commitment with the ZD Legal Network. So I um, hope you can maybe help me out of here because you do more <laughs> No, I think, I mean, I think what you said was, was very accurate. You know, challenges are opportunities. I mean, um, I think that both of us and, and also um, everybody within the network, you know, when you do have a challenge, um, it's also a moment for growth. So it's also a moment to kind of like take a step back and um, to see where, where, where you came from, um, to see what you need and, you know, specifically for that uh, challenge. Um, so it's also a moment to, uh, to grow. Uh, so I think that, that what yeah, if you're talking about challenges, I think that we kind of manage that quite well. We're very transparent and open as to um, everything that we do. So the different projects that we have, the internal structure of UCB Legal Network, um, you know, so I think that that um, makes the challenges not necessarily challenges. Um, the, and I, you know, you touched upon funding. Funding is very difficult, um, specifically now with um, COVID. A lot of our outreach and awareness activities uh, in the beginning were built around coming together, having discussions, having lectures, organizing trainings. Um, and when you do that in person, I think you can take away not only the knowledge, uh, but also the context and, and the maybe personal context, which um, is also a big thing within having a network. Um, so I think COVID uh, in that sense might have been uh, one of our challenges, um, but also there uh, we're quite adaptable as to, you know, jumping on Zoom, having all of our activities on Zoom. Uh, but I do think that because of that, you know, building the relationships that we need um, take a little bit longer. Um. Um, like Hope said, um, the fact that it was a challenge, uh, that COVID became a challenge, it became also an opportunity in the sense that we saw a lot of people reaching out to us from different parts of the world, something that we first not really initiated. Yeah. Um, and we have now great friends from um, Canada, and uh, we have um, great uh, friends now in Germany, and we have people all over, all over the world reaching out to us. And um, so I think, you know, the challenge of um, organizing events that became now online made us also aware of the possibilities around the world and not just the Netherlands. 
And due to COVID, I think we have grown very quickly. We have now more than 30 volunteers basically active in, at the NCD Legal Network. Um, and I think that despite or maybe because of COVID, we have been able to grow so quickly. Um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's 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 very interesting and it's a great perspective to actually look at it that way to see how your network actually grew across borders faster because <laughs> everything was on Zoom. So we kind of expanded our our minds as well and 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 went further. So yeah, that's actually a great way of looking at it. And I mean, it's just also good to see or to know what's to come once the lockdown and everything is over and we can actually all meet in person and and connect somewhere like that's that's also gonna gonna yeah make things yeah. even better so yeah but okay. what challenges we still are facing is funding and we organizing for instance um crowdfunding and uh hopefully in the future pe people can become donors to our organization and then we can actually um put more hours into the network. Right now we are very much limited in our hours because like I said, me and Hope, and I think all of the volunteers have also the need to have an income uh, and therefore time becomes limited. So uh, we are being creative in that uh, aspect as well. Yes, I cannot, I, I mean, I can, I fully agree with what you said. And to our listeners, there's going to be a link to our crowdfunding uh, page in the description below. So make sure to check it out if you want to contribute. So maybe let's, um, talking about more about, let's say, the legal components of uh, the network. Uh, we've talked about justice, how um, achieving justice can be difficult. So my question would be, what are the political, legal, and social components, in your opinion, to achieve justice? Uh, well, this is, a very, this is a question that basically uh, can take up hours. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. <laughs> um, but there have been some researches done, um, especially a research done by the Commission of Investigations and Gathering Evidence, uh, which is an organization by the Kurdish authorities. Um, and I... From, from the results that uh, have been published in their, in their uh, report, um, it stated that 96% of the survivors, um, for them, uh, locating those still in captivity or recovering the remains of loved ones who were killed or, to, or um, who were killed, uh, needs to have a, a proper burial and they need to be identified. And the many survivors called upon Iraqi and Kurdish authorities to step up in their search and rescue operations and locate missing family members, both in and outside of Iraq. So that's one thing that on a political level that could be done. And um, especially if you look at the latest statistics, which uh, the, the home-based Office of Kidnapped and Rescue Affairs, which was also established by the KRG, who stated that um, since 3 August 2014, around uh, 3,476 people have returned. Um, but there is an abduction of 6,400 Yazidis. So more than 3,000 people are still missing. Um, 
So that's 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 very important for them. That could be established on a political level. Um, according to many studies and uh, and also during their studies um, of um, the commission. Um, I would say that the guarantees of non-repetition constitutes an important form of overall process of redress, I say. Um, you can include measures to contribute to prevention of violations, such as ensuring effective civilian control of military and security forces, um, protecting human rights defenders, providing human rights education, and basically reviewing and reforming laws that are contributing or allowing gross mass uh, viol uh, violations of international human rights law. I mean, these types of commitments play a particularly important role in the context of growing uh, loss of trust in the state institutions within the EZD community. Um, yeah, more on political, I, I would say also a formal recognition of the genocide by the government in the form of an official declaration and also creating legislation uh, would be a first step basically in the direction um, um, of basically achieving justice. Because uh, many respondents uh, or of, of researchers conducted with the ingredients uh, pointed pointed a lot on the lack of any official acknowledgement of previous persecution campaigns against these EDs. And they see that as a factor that led to what, what happened actually in 2014. And the legal things, yeah. yeah. Um, Hope, you want to do the legal part? Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. I, I do think that, um, like you said in the beginning, um, you know, the, the legal components to achieve justice and, and maybe transitional justice is very broad, but if I could um, zoom in into like the accountability efforts, um, one thing that comes to mind for me is, is really the co proactive cooperation of um, war crimes units and, um, you know, the documentation organizations that are doing the work on the ground or, or started even um, in 2014 and, uh, and on. I think that, um, and I, I kind of like to refer it to the second phase, which um, I have no idea if I'm the only one or um, I, I don't know what academics or um, legal experts would refer this to. But for me, um, it's, it's very clear that there is so much information that has been documented already uh, by, uh, you know, the bigger organizations. Um, I'm sure that we're all familiar with these organizations. Um, they have these huge amounts of information in their databases, um, but right now the second phase is not really coming into play. So um, what this would entail is really the case building. So putting the pieces together, uh, really kind of doing the cooperation, you know, transferring information, sharing information with those that can actually bring a case to court. Uh, I think that I think that that's one of the legal components that are necessary if you're talking about accountability. Um, that's also my my main focus or my main background. Uh, I, I know that it, you know this is amazingly different difficult, but building those relationships in order to share information with each other, in order to build a case, 
um, putting different parties together. Uh, I think that that's something that's missing right now. I, I, I see that a lot of NGOs and war crimes units and states want to, like the will is there, um, but there are so many legal um, hurdles that we still need to get past, uh, making this process very slow. Uh, and I don't think that it necessarily has to go slow. Um, so building relationships and building a, a trustful relationship is something that's really core, uh, in my opinion. I guess that also is a bit of a the social components already in there, no. right? Um, yeah, you can say that that's part of the social co um, components. I would say that for the social component, if you look at the society, and if you look at um, Kurdistan, but mostly Iraq, you can see that for decades, Iraq's curriculum in public schools did not include the history of cultures of many minority groups, including the Yazidis, which is a factor that contributes to fostering ignorance uh, about their beliefs, about their cultures, about their traditions. Uh, although the situation has improved since 2003 and um, uh, so after the fall of Saddam Hussein, um, there's still much a need for improvement when it comes to education on minorities and their representation, especially in schools. I think this is where social change happens at school, at, at education level. Um, in 2012, Yazidis, Christians and Shabaks managed for the first time to be more accurately represented in textbooks. And nevertheless, the, in a, you know, the inaccurate and potentially dangerous portrayals of minorities arising from such limited educational um, legacy is, is not easily rectified um, as, as, as there are so many negative stereotypes of ethno-religious minorities and that continue to be perpetrated amongst both young and old generations. So there's a critical need to reform the education syllabus to adequately include and represent the, these minorities in Iraq in order to help the debunk dangerous myths and misconceptions, uh, which are almost always fertile ground for discrimination. Um, I think education can be a very useful tool in the support of peaceful coexistence but um and i think it's uh, one thing that you can do is to to sorry one thing you can do to increase um social justice i would say is education which is everywhere in the world that's actually where it starts and i think that there's also a need there this is one of the reasons why Yazidi legal network is also um, uh, increase wants to increase access to academic studies on the Yazidis to uh, make sure that they are also represented in the legal systems uh, that there's access to information for students uh, to write about or to learn about Yazidis. I think that it's important to see that um, the work that we do in the general database, which was one of our core projects, um, really fits into the question asked to what the political, legal, and social components are to achieve justice. So when talking about, um, uh, you know, sharing knowledge, awareness raising, but also academic value um, of what's happening to UCDs or, or, you know, 
their culture, how to preserve that. Um, that's what our general database um, actually does. So we have a team of about 20 um, with 15 volunteers who are very intensely trained to find open source information on the Yazidis, their community, um, crimes that happen after 20, 2014. Um, and they preserve this information, they put it in a data database, and they also analyze this information. Uh, our next step is to make this accessible for, uh, again, different, pu different public, uh, when you're, so the legal community, the Yazid community themselves, but also the broader academic community. Um, and, and I think that, you know, this is really a core thing, what Gila was talking about, if you're talking about uh, education, the need to have all of this information very accessible, it's very high. Uh, so, so this is one of our, our projects that we're working on right now, uh, which, which addresses these components. Yeah, and it's also based on the needs that Yazidis have told us that they would like to have recognition on multiple levels and not just only legal, but also historical recognition as well. And um, so this is what we are working on. Yeah, especially in displacement. I would like to add that many Yazidis are now in forced displacement locations, either in, uh, in, um, in Western countries, I would say, or in other locations. So their need to preserve their culture is also very high. Uh, yeah. I, I think it is an important um, point to make because um, obviously they have, a lot of Yazidis have re resettled across the world. So the risk of losing their culture, their language, their religion um, is, is quite high. Uh, so when you talk about documenting um, all of these different things um, from a legal perspective, from a document or historical documentation perspective, um, the need to do this is quite high. Absolutely. Yeah, thank you. I think that was, uh, yeah, that explained a lot, definitely. Um, we have another question that might be a bit um, difficult also to answer, but um, the Yazidi Legal Network is an apolitical organization. However, um, recognizing genocide is obviously a political act, and you've both mentioned that before, that that is super important. Um, how, how do you stand to that? How do you yeah. stand to that? Um, um, yeah, I mean, this is a, it's a very interesting question, but it's also a difficult question. Um, and this is something that each and every law student, um, I think, goes through during their, uh, their, their, law, their studies. Um, law and politics are so deeply intertwined uh, that you cannot necessarily um, take them apart and, and, and purely look at them um, separately. I think that one of the um, another kind of like internal rules that we have is that uh, I wouldn't say that we're all apolitical, but we, we try to stay neutral in the sense that we say that law is our language. And I think having this overall understanding that, you know, we abide by um, legal aspects of what happened um, makes it easier for us to stay away from the political discussion a little bit. 
Um, so, uh, again, I, if, if looking from a legal perspective as, as to recognizing genocide, um, the, the, the Netherlands, but also Iraq um, and other countries involved are, uh, they have to abide by their own standards. They have to abide by their own laws. A lot of us are party to the genocide convention. Um, so, so if you purely look at this from a perspective of uh, respecting human rights, uh, abiding by rights and laws um, and the rule of law and, and democratic values, uh, I think that recognizing genocide is not a political act. I think recognizing genocide is something that we as human beings have a duty to do. Um, and also, you know, the UN in 2014 came out with the, the Commission of Akari came out with a report very clearly stating that um, ISIS has committed a genocide against the Yazidis. Um, so, uh, I, yeah, again, I would not look at this as a political question, um, but purely as to, you know, what can we do for the Yazidis and, and how can we establish this recognition? So basically also there's the factor of genocide, recognizing genocide being a political act that is kind of artificially established because if, if we look at it in a simply realistic uh, way, then we would understand that this is a fact, it happened or it did not happen, and it's kind of made into a political yeah. action. So, yeah. Many of uh, the foreign fighters came also from European countries, and that their participation in the organization means that there's there needs to be also participation of European countries in establishing the facts of what happened to the Yazidis. During ISIS. And you said it very, very, I mean, very well. It's it's not only that, it's it's also a, a responsibility for the member states um, of the foreign fighters to, to have a certain responsibility as to how are we going to resolve this situation? How are we going to address this? Um, and I think that recognition of um, what happened to the Yazidis is the first step. Um, so, so in that sense, absolutely. And I, I think that there's still a lot of steps that we can make, um, not only us as a, as an organization, um, but also as, um, talking specifically as uh, somebody from the Netherlands, uh, the Dutch state as well. Yeah, well, we definitely need more, um, let's say state participation when it comes to these kind of, um, of actions, these kind of, um, of events happening. Um, yeah, maybe uh, we can skip to the last question. Um, feel free to answer in whatever way you want. It doesn't have to be only a seed legal network based. Um, so I'm just going to ask you if you could say something to the world today, what would it be? Uh, Sheila, would you, like to, would you like to start this one? <laughs> <laughs> so my message for the world would be to stay safe obviously, um, and healthy, uh, but most importantly to remember that you are not alone. Um, I think that that's the most important lesson that I have learned uh, while setting up the Legal Network, 
Um, I thought that I was alone in, in wanting to establish a ZD legal network. And here I am uh, two years later with 30 other uh, very strong and able people working on the justice for Yazidis. And um, I'm really grateful for that. So if you have ideas, stick to your ideas and remember you're never alone. Thank you. That's very inspiring. Hope, would you like to say yeah, uh, I mean, something more? Um, I, I, could, I could probably say a lot, but I think that um, for me, the core message is to, to respect each other's values and uh, to understand that there are different differences and uh, that these differences need to be respected. But at the end of the day, we're all human beings. Uh, we're all the same. We're all equal. Um, and we need to support each other. I think that that's something that's very, uh, very dear to me. Um, and, and I hope that more people in the world have more understanding for each other. Um, that would be my, um, my kind of peace statement, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> Well, definitely both of them very strong and meaningful messages, especially in the times uh, we're living in right now. Okay, so, um, well, from myself and Svenja, thank you very much for this interview. I hope it was as interesting for our listeners as it was for us. And if you like this po podcast, feel free to share it with your friends and colleagues and make sure to hit the follow button. You can also find further information on Yassi Legal Network, as well as on our projects uh, via our website or on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter. And as I already mentioned before, um, if you want to support our mission and Yazidi survivors, uh, please donate via the link in the description. Stay tuned for the next episode where, where we will talk to two experts on Yazidi cultures and history. Thank, Thank you. you. And goodbye. Bye. Thank you.